All right, mates, Cheeky Volley, episode 31. It's been a while since our last episode, which was following the Australian Open. We had Dan Cohen on the last two episodes, and his performance was so good that we've made it a point to have him on each episode. <laughs> What's up, Dan? Hey, guys. Hey, wel- welcome, welcome, Dan. Yeah, due to popular demand, uh, Dan is on. Yeah, he's, re- he's, replaced, he's replaced. He's replaced. He's replaced Brett as a, <laughs> as a core as a core member of uh, Cheeky Volley. I'm I'm just keeping his mic warm. Alex and D Mitch are probably just getting home for resident from residency, so they couldn't make it. Mike also just getting home from work. We don't know where Brett is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Asher, what time is it in London? Uh, it's one thirty. All right, sick. A.M. Nice. When when do you head back to L.A.? I'm not sure yet, but I will be in New York for the U.S. Open in the in late August. Nice. Which we we which we we still don't have tickets for. No, we don't have tickets for because uh, if you go on the website and try to get a grounds pass, it's three hundred and thirty dollars. Absurd. That ticket was twenty bucks when I was going as a kid. (laughs) We do need to do another (laughs) episode. Aging myself here. Why is it that the USTA permits resales? Immediately on day one, there are many things USTA could learn from Wimbledon, and that and the the French the French Open as well. By the way, there there there's no scalping allowed in the French Open. It's a very effective uh, buy and sell yeah online online platform. So I don't know why the USTA is um is is behind those two on on this issue. Anyway, Wimbledon week two, Dan, we were just talking about this. You mentioned that there was an article out there talking about the evolution of grass. Asher, we've spoken about this in a lot uh, about this a lot on how the surface has changed and what that says about the way the game is played and if that affects uh, different game styles than it did compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, we all know that they changed the composition of the grass itself from a blend down to I forget what it, what they're actually using now, but they changed the grass starting maybe 15 or so years ago. Um, and you see that materially where like it used to be there were the grass court specialists, just the way that there were clay court specialists and you kind of have one guy come in, he went for a year and you never heard from him again. Uh, the last, you know, 15 years of tennis, you've had pretty high concentration where there's just a handful of guys winning every tournament, but you still see a lot of players making deep runs consistently across all three surfaces. And I have to think that that's do in concert the slowing down of the Wimbledon grass and also the speeding up of the clay at Roland Garros where you're kind of regressing to a mean which is why you see all these players competitive on all three surfaces throughout the entirety of the season spot on and Asher, Asher. I know th- I know th- I know that we've spoken a lot about that I'm sure you have thoughts yeah I think I think it's 2001 where they changed it or it was 2003, and then when Federer won against Philippoussis in 2003, that was the last year that anyone won the tournament serve volleying, and then the next year it was pretty much dead. But with the with the grass itself, I think it heavily depends on the the weather conditions, uh, for the view leading up to the tournament, then during the tournament itself. So you you do get slight variations, even though as you say that, uh, it has become slower in general over the years and the same people kind of do well but in the lead up to this tournament it was extremely hot and and dry so the so the courts became quite baked and the last time that happened was in 2018 when we had an extremely dry summer 
um every, like the everything was burnt uh in the parks and that year Kevin Anderson and John Isner got to the semis so leading up to this tournament I I felt like it might be something similar where because it gets baked and gets dry it gets a bit quicker and it's bouncier so the guys who are tall with the big serves um they can hammer down aces more often the the kick serve gets a bit more bounce and then because the ball is coming up slightly higher, the tall guys don't have to get as low as they would otherwise. So I think that's the reason why you've seen some really huge serving performances in this tournament. Uh, Bublik served pretty great um, for his three or four matches. Hercatch, even though he lost to Djokovic, which he, he could have easily won that match, he, he served like 40 aces. And then Eubanks has just broken the record for uh, the most winners at a, at a Wimbledon ever. 321 winners during the championship. That's unreal. Yeah. I think you, I think you also see it in how they're, how players are approaching the game tactically. I mean, serving volley has been on the decline for a long time, but you would always see a lot of players implemented at Wimbledon just because of how fast the surface was and how unpredictable the bounces could be. So like even in recent memory, going back six, eight years, you saw kind of, dual patches of brown at the baseline as well as mm. up at net as players would approach watching it this year as i've watched the court sort of degrade in real time round by round you're not seeing any impact on the playing surface up at net all of the discoloration is taken back behind the baseline or at yeah. the baseline and i think that's just like the points are getting extended because players are able to hang in the rallies longer probably because they're so much more athletic than they've ever been but also they're slowing it down uh, so so even though they've had all these kind of record amount of winners, I think that there's actually more play being done. And I've also heard some chatter around speed between the stadium courts versus the outside courts. I guess the stadium courts are playing even slower, which probably goes yeah. to some of the weather conditions you were talking about. Yeah. And then I think the whole the the Runa Alcaraz match, there's barely any winners today. Yeah. Uh, and barely any aces as well. So on this, I'm curious. It does seem over the last 15 to 20 years, you needed to be a grass court specialist to play. And now you see players, okay, Rune, quarterfinals, Sinner, mm. two-time semifinalist, Alcaraz, semifinalist. Admittedly, I think, um, not admittedly, but fair enough, uh, Alcaraz and Sinner, I think their game does translate well to grass. Maybe mm. not 15 years ago. What's going on here? Have they found a way to become specialists? Or is this really a function of the evolution of the surface changing? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. What I've always I don't know the answer to that, but what I've always what I've noticed in the last few years is that almost no one is good on grass anymore. So even though even though it's it's favoring baseliners more, um, the baseline game that people like the 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 typical example of the modern baseliner is like Zverev, right? Who stands like a few few a couple of meters behind the baseline and he likes to grind. That doesn't necessarily work on the the grass itself you have to stand a bit closer take it a bit earlier because the ball like dies on you yeah. it doesn't it doesn't like it still doesn't have the same uh heaviness and speed off the surface like the the clay and hard do speaking of grass court specialist let's briefly talk andy Murray. so in the run up to wimbledon won two challengers one is serbiton uh and one in nottingham he's now up to 40 in the world um, that was a hard Kabir, if, I could, if, if I could just go back to the last question for a second sorry to interrupt please, no, no, range, please, please. but talking about like how some of these younger athletes are performing and making deep rounds and not really being a specialist 
first of all, I think Alcaraz is going to be a constant asterisk. He's just such an athletic freak where he's, mm. he's one enormous fast switch muscle and he doesn't really think about it. It doesn't seem as though he's thinking about it too much, right? He's very relaxed out there. His strokes are really solid. I think that he's, his ability to just move and move so effectively and so explosively is going to work on any surface. So that's kind of where I'm coming out on him on center. What I think is really unique is that he's a taller guy, very lanky, but if you look at him structurally, the way that he bends for his height is so Mm. effective. And one of the things that you have to do in order to be efficient on, on grass is actually get low and be able to hit through the ball as it's coming towards you and skipping off the surface a lot of the other guys that are his height and certainly the ones that are a little bit older that don't have as much experience playing on grass, they kind of bend at the waist a little bit more. So they're not really in a position to drive that ball back. Uh, so I think for those two players specifically, those that's what I would highlight. All right. Going a bit further on this. So these are such good points. Two, all right, two, two things. One, on your point about Alcaraz, Alex had a really interesting comment about this one. I think he's exactly right. This is exactly in line with what you're saying. Alcaraz hits his forehand in a way where I think the way he finishes his shot, whether he's 15 feet behind the baseline or stepping in, he's always moving forward. In, in a way, I think that we saw Federer in like 07. Every single time he hit that shot, he was moving forward and being aggressive. I think that's proving to be very effective on the grass. And the other thing, the, um, I have not been able to figure out what it is exactly about Sinner's movement. He does bend very differently. Can you can we talk about that a bit more? Yeah, so, actually, you 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 had a lot to say about the way he gets low on both sides and why that's effective on grass. I so, I can't pinpoint that yet. A lot a lot of people have actually. So Sinner used to be an elite skier at a very yeah. young age, and he very was well so was Djokovic. And yeah, and yeah, yes, and the and but Sinner was thinking of going pro, and then he had to make a choice between skiing and tennis. Uh, I personally have never skied before, but a lot of the commentators have posited that. The, the skiing technique in terms of like bending the knees and like getting into certain body positions that translates well into the grass and the way he moves on the tennis court is relatively similar to, to skiing more so than other guys. Yeah, that's a great point. I can kind of visual, I'm not a big skier myself, but I can visualize it when he really stretches the way that he kind of kicks his, his legs out wide to get low rather than bending down to get, to get low to those balls. Uh, on Alcaraz, what I would say to your point about him always landing, finishing forward, I think that's exactly right. If you see it any time that he's slipped on the court this entire tournament, he's almost always been like falling towards the net, not falling yeah. side to side the way that you see a lot of those other players fall when their legs come out from under him. It, it really is amazing to see. We briefly want to talk about the Murray Sissi Paz match. I, I look, I, I thought he could make a run. I was disappointed that match. It was a tough match. I think if they wasn't uh if they didn't hit the curfew, looked mm-hmm. like he had a chance to to win that and not let it go five. Um anyway, any any thoughts on that match? And then he also he also didn't challenge at uh fifteen thirty. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when the ball when the ball was in. But I think I think in general he he played pretty well. He does look a lot older um, in the in some of his movements. Kabir mm-hmm. mentioned this in his first match that he, he stopped really bending the knees on his serve. He just <laughs> kind of throws it up and, and hits it. It's an abbreviated motion. It used to be uh, a bit of a deceptively long pronounced motion, and it's now it's 
right it, it's it's an abbreviated motion the knee bend isn't really there uh one i think mark petchy said that he's only doing that for the grass i don't know if i believe that <laughs> i think <laughs> we'll see that on the hard court as well as so remains to be seen um briefly sitsipas what's going on with him hasn't won a tournament in what a year maybe over a year has he peaked is he has I, he become I, a poor big match player what, what's going on I I think he's got to make a coaching change. I really do. Mm, Uh, Yeah. You know, I think that the combination of him sort of outgrowing his father's ability to be an elite level coach paired with whatever's going on in that relationship under the hood, it's just not allowing him to reach his potential. I think strategically it's problematic. I think it chews up too much of his mental energy fighting with the box when he's on the court. Uh, And I think that, yeah, just strategic. Like, I don't see any evolution to his game and for how yeah. dangerous he can be, especially with that forehand, with that serve, his ability to cover ground, albeit maybe not the most efficiently out there. There's too much potential for him to continually just get caught up and, you know, making a, a run to a third round in a major or just completely crapping the bed. Yeah, he had, he had Mara Toklu in, um, in his corner for a while, but I think they broke up a year ago, maybe. One and a half years ago, and he hasn't. In fairness, Mar- Mar- <laughs> may have just been running for greener pastures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the the. Uh, but in any case, the Apostolos Maritoglu coaching partnership didn't really sell me any dreams while it was <laughs> happening. But he uh, he hasn't replaced Maritoglu with a, a seasoned a seasoned coach. And I think I think you guys are exactly right. And on speaking of Maritoglu, maybe we'll do another episode where we do a uh, <laughs> left eye right eye test. <laughs> <laughs> to see which is dominant. <laughs> uh, yeah, just to finish on Sitsipas, it's like his backhand has not improved at all in the last two, three years. And the way he's playing is, is similar to how um, mid-2000s peak Federer played in that he used to run, run around a lot of backhands and rip a lot of forehands, but his court positioning was a lot more advanced so he could get on top of points quicker. And he could control a lot better with the slice. Like Sitsipas' slice isn't as effective as Federer's was. Uh, and the, these two things have not improved at all uh, in the last few years. I agree with that. But I also think his forehand has maybe gotten worse. I think two years ago, mid-court, he was one of the most effective players. Mm. You rarely saw him come in on a forehand and lose a point, whether he uh, placed it in the corner and finished off the net or if it was a winner. I'm not really seeing that at the moment. I don't know if it's a matter of confidence or something technically changed, but the forehand does not seem to be as lethal as it once was. I I think the forehand is still there when he decides to stay back. Like he was ripping inside out winners all day long in that Murray match. But I think you're right on the approach forehands or the, you know, court positioning forehands. It's not there. And I think frankly, that starts with the fact that he's not comfortable at net. And if you take it one step further, he should absolutely be comfortable in that. He's got a giant wingspan. He's mobile. He can come in off that huge forehand. And to me, that's a coaching error. Yep. Mm. All right. Let's move to... Before we get into the preview of the men's semifinals, Asher, you were there the other day for the quarterfinals for the Joker-Rublev match, I believe. Can we talk about Djokovic's performance? You had some interesting comments today about where where you think his his level is at i'm really curious to hear uh you and dan talk about this yeah um interesting match um 
it seemed just from the beginning that Novak, uh, his ball is just a lot more penetrating than Rublev's, even though he puts in way less effort. His his ground strokes are so efficient when you watch them close up. But he didn't quite get the break in the first set. And then the match was going how it how it should for Rublev in terms of what you would what you would, would need to happen if you want to beat Novak. So Rublev wasn't playing too too good himself, but because Novak is anti-fragile, <laughs> so the better you play against him, the better he becomes. So you don't want to play too well against Novak because then that's that's a recipe for disaster. So Rublev, he was uh he he was like niggling around, saving a couple of breakpoints on his serve, and then it gets deep into the set. Novak gets slightly tight, and then Rublev just breaks him. Boom, six four. So then Rublev needed to just stay on that level um, for the for as long as possible, but he couldn't he couldn't continue that, and he got broken first game of the second set uh, in very bad fashion. One on force error, one double fault, and then. Novak started to hum after that. He took that set 6-1, uh, played really well at the beginning of the third, uh, got very tight. Uh, end of the third set, Rublev had three break points. And then but once the third set was over, the match the match was pretty much uh, wrapped up. In terms of Novak's overall level, like he he wasn't happy at all with how he was playing. He kept looking to, to Goran and, and Carlos in his box. Uh, he was like slapping the ball into the ground. <laughs> Um, it doesn't feel like his level is there. And against her catch, he I did he take he, the hat out? Did did he wear the hat? <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't wear the hat. Uh, it was overcast, so there's no sun. Um, he he's not he's not playing his best uh, against her catch. I think that was a real opportunity to to beat Novak, but her catch really fumbled the bag on the big points in that. Uh, he lost. He was six three up in the first set tie break. Five three up in the second set tie break. So. Real quick, do we do we agree that Hercot should be steady top ten? Yeah, or on or, grass, or... yes. Dan, are you saying overall year throughout year maybe top fifteen, not top ten? Uh, yeah, I definitely give him top fifteen. I okay. think there is a case to be made where if enough good players have good seasons, they bump him out of the ten. Okay. Yeah, I think I think his yeah. clay court his clay court like season as a whole might not be good enough for him to consistently stay top ten, but on like faster high hard courts and grass, uh, he yeah. he, should, he should he like he should be amongst the favorites, I think, or in the tier below Novak and like Alcaraz, he should be among among those guys. Dan, how where how do you rate Joker's performance? Uh so. He, I mean, he's, he should be the favorite. He feels like he's the favorite. He hasn't played his best tennis because um, he hasn't been stretched, but except for maybe the Hercotch match. But the, the guy just always is able to find whatever good enough needs to be. Um, and that's probably one of the elements of his greatness, right? Like, he's not out there necessarily dominating the way that, like, early round Alcaraz is coming out and just stomping on people. Um, but – the the guy is the best problem solver on the tour, bar none. Mm. Um, and we, I think it's also, you have to take his sort of on-court demeanor with a big grain of salt because he, no matter how much it looks like he's losing it, whether he's frustrated with his play, he's chatting with his box, he's slamming balls into the ground. I have no doubt the guy is 100% emotionally and mentally in control at every single moment. Mm. So well yeah. said. There's... um. 
we we'll talk about this for sure when we go back on to when we have when you record again about the the goat debate. But when you reach this stage of Novak's career and you're still in great physical shape, uh, mentally a very solid. Throughout your throughout his career, he's built up like an accumulation of goat energy, <laughs> like just just by playing Nadal like sixty times, <laughs> by playing Federer fifty times, by winning twenty three majors. Uh, and just having so, a winning record against both. Yeah, of them. winning record against both of them. Um, being great grass court player, being great on all surfaces. There's just this goat energy that he has, where he can just kind of sleepwalk through matches and and win them. When yeah. it gets uh, so yeah, so we we'll we'll then get to what it means for his potential match. Well, his match against Sinner, and then his potential match against uh, Alcaraz. Yeah, for sure. And before we get to the Alcaraz Medvedev match, I want to talk a bit more about this matchup, Sinner Djokovic. So they played last year in the same round. Sinner was up two sets, lost that in five. Last year, right before Wimbledon, um, Darren Cahill joined his coaching team. That seemed to make a huge difference. Subsequent to that, we've noticed some tweaks to his service motion. Um, curious to talk about that a bit. And I want to, I want, I want to hear what you, what you both have to say about why Sinner has been playing so well on grass um, and why this seems to be a very dangerous matchup. And again, I, I think the serve is not there. Even if this goes five again, even if he wins the first two, I'm still going with Djokovic mm-hmm. in five. I think the serve is a liability, but I, I, I want to hear you both talk about this. Yeah, Dan mentioned it earlier. Um, he's just a really great mover, right? And if you look at the best grass court players of the last 10 years, it's it's been pretty much guys who are 6'1", 6'2", and move really well. Like with Novak, Federer. Um, also, does he center. take the ball a lot earlier he, he, than we he think? Takes right? a, he, takes, he takes the ball much Probably earlier early. than, than, um, than Medvedev, than Zverev. So he's a lot better than that style of um, a baseliner. Uh, his, his return is excellent as well. And then he also like takes it early and rips it off both sides. So from the baseline, he's he might be the best guy. But when we serving... saw him play at the U.S. Open, and again, I think because of his balance and his his skiing background, his split step and his just ready position on the court is, I think, his default is much lower. And something about it, um, the way he unloads on both sides. Alex made the comment that he's the most aggressive player on tour. Mm. I'm starting to see it though. Yeah. I, I really think again he also not only does he take the ball early, he take he plays on top of the baseline. Yeah. Right? He takes the backhand so early and something about the way he whips his left arm through it. It's um and then he's often hitting these backhands with his uh his left knee on the ground. Yeah. Guy is, is My knee has like... never gotten that close to the ground. <laughs> I, I would slice it or go for a one-hander. Yeah, I, I think talking about his his movement and taking the ball early, it all comes down to his his preparation, which is is the best or one of the best on tour easily. Uh, to be that lanky, to stand on top of the baseline, and to still hit the ball that far out in front. You don't get there unless you're seeing the ball so well off the opponent's rackets and you're just getting prepped so, so early. I think looking ahead to the Djokovic match, there's no reason that he doesn't have what it takes to win. Uh, He's put on a good amount of muscle since last year. He should be going into this with a high degree of confidence just based on last year's match alone. 
Uh, I think really what it's going to come down to is can he keep nerves in check? And secondly, if he has to adapt, how able is he to change his game plan? Because up to date in the tournament, he hasn't really been challenged. He's gone out there very assertively, very clear-minded in what it is he's trying to execute. But as I said earlier, Djokovic is the best problem solver on the tour. Mm -hmm. So if what he tries to do isn't working and you're now stretched into the third set or the fourth set and you need to make a change, how how well can he do that? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that, that's a great point. But a uh, quick sidebar for the people who are interested in forehand technical analysis. So you, when you watch Sinner, you you his smokes are very his strokes are very smooth, very actually similar to Novak. But one of the reasons he can be erratic, especially more erratic than Novak, on the forehand side is that his strings point behind him uh, on his takeback, while Novak's are more flat. Mm-hmm. And that means that his racket has to move a lot more in space. Uh, it has to twist a lot more to get back to square. So because he has to do more of that, it, it, he can um, lose some consistency. While Novak is just so efficient, it's it's uh, very clean. He doesn't have to move his face that much as he's swinging forward. And, and to uh, your point, he, he does shank a fair amount. Yeah. 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 Especially and, cross court. Yeah. And if you look at some of the matches he's played, he's like dominating and then he just loses set. Or yep. he's like dominating, he'll, he'll get broken. And then he's like losing to Sefiulin in four. Um, and then I think the Colombian guy in the previous round also almost took a set off him. He was, oh, he was, Galan. He was, yeah, Galan. He almost went um, a breakup in the second. But okay, uh, that technical sidebar aside, going back to Dan's point, is that Sinner is extremely one-dimensional. Right, His one dimension is amazing. Like his ground strokes are amazing, but once he's uh, once he's like punched out, then he I don't know w- what he goes to. Like Alcaraz has like a plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. Sinner only has a plan A, and if that is like I, I don't know what he's gonna do if he if he gets down in the in the score. Yeah, the the other thing here is Sinner is whatever call it 15, 16 years younger than Djokovic, so on paper he should be able to go five on a Mm. slower grass court and just be able to bang all day. However, Djokovic is Djokovic. I've seen nothing to indicate that he's going to get winded at any point throughout this entire tournament. So I'm almost turning the, turning the tables back on center. Can his body hang up, hang up as they go through the three hour mark, the four hour mark. If they go deeper, I I'm more worried about center. Given the number of retirements he's had, he's had knee injuries, wrist injuries. It seems like his, his body is quite, uh, brittle while Novak is um I don't know what he's on but <laughs> he's yeah and, and look I know Sinner went up two sets last year I don't think he can win this in four he the only way for him to win it is in five I don't think he can win it in five no he can't he can't win it in five yeah the, five, I think the yeah. only way the only way he can win it is in four but it's, it feels like he can't win it in four but well one other good thing about Sinner is that even after he um so last year he lost in five. He was playing unreal in the first two sets. And the thing about him, which other guys don't have, and we'll get back into this in the the tier system that we'll talk about, is when guys like Rublev, Sitsipas, Zverev play Novak, it doesn't feel like they can hurt him. And it doesn't it doesn't ever feel like they can win. But when Sinner gets on top of Novak, it's it's kind of like when Stan used to get on top of Novak, taking it early, hitting it through him, making Novak uh, feel his presence you know like making him uncomfortable and those guys don't make him uncomfortable and Sinner can't do that 
And then, so he did that last year in that match, but that was definitely way too early in his career. That was his first big match. Uh, I think his first Grand Slam, quarter, no, his second Grand Slam quarterfinal. And then he had that match, and then he had a huge match against Alcaraz, which he should have won in the U.S. Open quarters. And then another uh, big match against Tsitsipas, five. So he's he's gotten a lot of reps in. So in terms of where he is in his career, I think he is ready. But I, I don't know. He's probably playing the he's playing who's probably the goat who has uh, a lot of goat energy and. He's getting younger every year. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Joker in four or Joker in five? I, I'm going Sinner in four. Whoa! <laughs> YOLO, YOLO. I'll, I'll take Novak in five. I'm going Novak in five. Alcaraz, Medvedev. I think Talk this about is, this. Yeah. I just, based on what we saw earlier in the season... Alcaraz against Medvedev. I don't think that Medvedev has what it takes to take away Alcaraz's inherent advantage playing on a grass court. Mm-hmm. Being aggressive, the ability to and comfort in coming to net, amazing touch. Uh, you know, Medvedev, he, he, he's an incredible shot maker and he gets the things that you never thought a guy his size could, could do. But I think the conditions are just too ripe for Alcaraz to be able to be assertive, play to his strengths. And I don't see Medvedev changing enough in the ways that he needs to change to be competitive um, between, you know, his prior match and this one. Yeah, like I think in terms of their um, their their regular matchup, taking surface aside, like Alcaraz has a huge matchup and a huge matchup advantage against Medvedev because Medvedev plays this counterpunching style. He stands 15 feet behind the baseline. He gets everything back. And the rest of the tour struggles against him because, A, they're not as good in the forecourt, so they can't finish balls off as well. And they're not good at net. And they're not good at, like, the, the short slices and the drop shots. And Alcaraz has all of those, like, in abundance. So you, we saw it at Indian Wells. He absolutely crushed him. And then the, the grass kind of magnifies a lot of this as well. So if, if Medvedev wants to stand a few feet behind, then Alcaraz can keep the ball even lower. Uh, on the grass he can he can bring him in more he can come in himself so I don't really see Medvedev and then Alcaraz had a great returning match against Berrettini as well when Berrettini was playing really well so it seems like his return game has really stepped up uh, in the last few months so Medvedev would have to serve like unreal get a bit lucky and then even then I, I don't see him I don't see him winning and also, Alcaraz really only had to play like two and a half sets in his prior match, whereas Medvedev and Eubanks were banging it out over five. Mm. So Alcaraz in three, Alcaraz in four, something like that. I'll go with four. Yeah. I yeah. still, I, I would not be surprised if we see a five setter, but I see Alcaraz I think, going I think- through. I think the thing that helps Medvedev the most is, is I don't think Alcaraz is playing particularly well this tournament. No, no, he he uh, um, he, he started playing really well against Berrettini, I think, after the first set and the beginning of the second. Uh, he played a really bad match against Runa today. Yeah, can, can uh, we talk he, about that? From, from I didn't see the yeah. whole match, but from what I saw, I thought there was a lot of tension in that match, not necessarily between them, but. 
Asher, you had some some comments on the tension that you uh, picked up on. Uh, I'm curious, curious yeah, to hear the, about the, that. The commentators normally like hype up a lot of stuff that doesn't um, bear out in any way at all. But in this in this case, it, it might have actually uh, come to fruition in that these guys are best friends as juniors. They played doubles together at 14, 15, I don't know. Um, and they just they just like were feeling themselves out for like the whole first set. And it was ex- extremely low quality. <laughs> loopy oh, forehands oh. from Rune, right? Rune was he Rune was hitting forehands either loopy, so just spun in like 2000 circa 2005 Andy Murray. Uh, and every time he went for a winner, he would just spray it like six feet out. Alcaraz was just dumping balls into the net. He he had one of the most stupid shots I've ever seen, where he ran around a, a put away backhand volley to hit a forehand drop volley that <laughs> <laughs> that that Rune got to. With plenty of time, um, but then, but then I think at the end of the at the end of the tiebreak and at the end of the second set, he he found a couple of uh, backhand returns. Uh, so he won he won the tiebreak with a backhand return, and then uh, he broke Runa with a backhand return in second set. So he he kind of found the the moment where um, the level where he needed in in the moments. But as a whole, I think it was one of the worst matches I've seen him play in the last year. I'm still thrilled that it was a three setter though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel like based on what I've seen of the tournament to date, the the Novak Yannick side of the draw, certainly those two players are playing better than anyone else so far on the other side. Mm. And then you but, also had you also had a few other good players on this side, like um Hercatch was playing pretty well, Bublik was playing well, Rublik beat Bublik in a in a great match. So you had a yeah, that was a great match, but you still, you, I still think advantage advantage Alcaraz to come through because he's got what it takes to raise his game. Not quite the way that Novak can raise his game, but of all the young guys, he's the one who's proven his ability to do that. Mm. Before we get to the tiered system, one question: in the Joker sitter match, I think more so than any other match in maybe the last two years. Um, the first set is very important for Djokovic. I don't think this is a match that he can take a risk of losing the first set, playing his way into it. I mean, again, we know he can do it. He'll find a way to do it. I think the first set is very important. In terms of tactics, what do you expect to see from Djokovic in the first set? I think he's Maybe he uses slice slice a lot more. Um, his slice has actually improved a ton, and he's he's become. I think it's it's one of the best in the game now. I don't think uh, he gets enough credit for how no. good his slice is. His slice and his net game, like at at net, he's excellent as well. Uh, and these two things have really improved over the last five years. Um, I think in his in his first prime, he wasn't doing these things like nearly as well as he is now. So I think he he might be looking to do some some slices, some short slices, especially bring Sinner in because Sinner's net game is absolutely awful. <laughs> um, get him get him into uncomfortable situations. Yeah, yeah, to follow up on that, I think bringing him to net is a good one, and I also think that in keeping with the the slice, basically park him in the middle of the court. I think Sinner is so dangerous when he's on the run. His ability to create those big angles where he just smashes the ball forehand cross court through the court if he takes that away it just kind of makes him play up the middle i think he takes away a good amount of 
center's weapons while knowing that Djokovic can track down just about any ball. The one ball that I don't have a lot of confidence in Djokovic getting is an out wide center forehand that he just plows through. Could be an absolute banger for match. The Alcaraz Medvedev one, I think, will be good, but I think that's also going to be a very weird match <laughs> with, I think, both players most likely. For some reason, I think they're not going to play their best. And it's going to be a bit of a struggle. Uh, Djokovic Alcaraz one, I think, is going to be extremely high quality hitting from the first point. Mm. All right. Now, we've spoken about this briefly on episodes, but in much detail uh, outside of the episodes, <laughs> we have developed the framework, the tiered system. All right. Tell us about it. Yeah. So it, so with, with the world rankings, we kind of feel that they don't portray an accurate picture of who the real contenders in men's tennis are. Right. So let's say like a Taylor fits at five. Like we, we know he isn't going to win any majors anytime soon or like a, a Rublev or a Sitsipas. We, we don't have faith in these guys, but there are some guys we have more faith than others. And just based on, uh, it's 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 based on a bunch of different things like uh, runs in majors, performance against like goat gen in like big matches. It doesn't necessarily have to be majors, but that's obviously the most important. It could be like big finals of like Masters one thousands. Um, a, a classic example: is someone like Casper Ruud who got to world number two last year. <laughs> There's no way he should be world number. He shouldn't really be a top five to ten guy let alone two. So our uh, our very subjective system uh, draws upon... It's kind I of would like, call it precise. <laughs> yes, yeah, subjective and extremely precise uh, system. It, <laughs> it draws it draws upon the, uh, the pyramid system, I guess, that Bill Simmons kind of popularized with his... Uh, his his book of basketball where he, he broke down all the players in terms of pyramids and he divided them into tiers. So we... We have like a top tier, which Novak is at the very top. And these guys are the instant major contenders. Like these guys, we would not be surprised if they won majors. They're they're going to compete for the Masters uh, 1000 every single time. They have the ability to be the best guys. And then just below Novak, or not, not just below, but below Novak in the tier one, we would put uh, Alcaraz and we would put Medvedev. Medvedev has, a, has enough. He's done enough now. He beat Novak in the final of the of the U.S. Open. He's had a couple of really good matches against Nadal. He should have won at least one of them. He's he's won like almost every single Masters hard court. Um, Alcaraz, of course, his record speaks for itself. And then, so when we go when we go below that tier, we get into like a like a hybrid tier one two. Not sure if anyone's in there yet. But then when we go into tier two, Sinner is definitely at the forefront of tier two, even though his He's not as accomplished as, uh, as like a Sitsipas, who's won who's won majors. He's he's also beaten, I think, Rafa and Novak at a couple of clay one thousands. But when we see when we see someone like a Sinner play, we think that he there is a chance he could beat Novak in a in a major, just based on his his mentality, based on his like playing style. While the same isn't ca- isn't the case for Rublev. Or a Runa yet, or a Sitsipas, or a Gaspar Rude, or a, or a Fritz, or a Tiafo, or a Kashinov, or, or a, or a Cam Nori, <laughs> or a, especially a Cam Nori. 
Um, so yeah, this this is this is the tier system. Um, and then so tier two are the guys who are they can win Masters one thousands. They'll be in amongst the favorites because the tier one guys don't take those as seriously. And I think Holger is is he's kind of put himself into the tier two as well, uh, because he beat Novak in the final of Paris last year. He got to a couple of finals this year. Um, well, I think the the rest of the top ten guys are kind of in that tier three where if they did go deep at a major or they won a major, we would be pretty shocked. So that's like a Casper, Rublev, Fritz, Tiafo, Kachanov. Yeah, I think, and I think so below that, you get you have like a couple of random guys who are in like this tier two, tier three hybrid where if everything went well for them in a week, we wouldn't actually be surprised if they won. So if a Kyrgios came back, he would be in that bucket or like a randomly a Seb Korda who everyone loves, um, <laughs> even though he hasn't done anything in his career at all. <laughs> but Novak uh, said he had a beautiful game in January. So won a few rounds at Queens. Said he <laughs> felt yeah. he was a favorite at Wimbledon. Lost first round to Vesely. Yeah, he uh, he uh, he lost to Novak seven six in the third in like Adelaide, and then Novak said he had beautiful strokes, so he gets bumped <laughs> up a couple of levels because of that. So I love the tiered system. I think it changes the analysis when you look at the draw for any of these big tournaments. But I suspect that Dan has a different allocation between <laughs> tier one and two. I, I, certainly. So so I'll give my interpretation of the tiered system, which I think largely is in alignment with Asher's. And I think really what it is, is like it's a probabilistic distribution, right? So at the tier ones, you've got the guys that like we expect, we not only think they're capable, but we expect them to win majors. Right. That's your Djokovic. That's your Alcaraz. And then tier two, it's, well, maybe it's not expected. It is by no, it is a close to even odds that these guys can take out players in tier one over the course of large tournaments. So that could be like a center over Alcaraz like situation. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, and then tier three is other things have to happen for those odds to strike. That um, is I, so well said. I like this. I like. Yeah, that I like it. Is on yeah. point. <laughs> so you're you're goading me into uh, my my tier three application, <laughs> uh, which is to say that the Canadians, uh, while barely hanging on to tier three status, um, but. Yeah, the, we should probably have an entire episode about the gross <laughs> underperformance of the Canadians at Wimbledon, uh, but we don't have time for that in this one. But yeah, I mean, I think that the tier system takes the sort of match results that the ATP system puts in place and instead looks at either matchups or runs in tournaments on a probabilistic basis that I think is, is much more reality-based. I like that, bringing, bringing Bayes into into cheeky volley <laughs> nice <laughs> Beijing updating now <laughs> i'm in agreement with both of you but the, the one the one aspect i'm still unclear on is having won a slam medvedev and Alcaraz, and clearly being contenders for more why would you not put them in tier one I have I them in tier one. Okay, I thought you were putting them in tier two. No, no, like no. Novak, Novak, top of tier one, and then um, uh, bottom of tier one. Alcaraz, yeah, bottom of tier one. Where do you put Rublev? 
Bottom uh, of tier two? No, no, uh, three. Tier three. Three, knock, yeah. knocking on two. Yeah, yeah two, three, knocking two. on two. Yeah. Like, like, what is he? He's like 0-8 or 0-9 in Grand Slam quarters. Yeah. Uh, I think it's like the, the most number, whatever the number is, it's the most number of Grand Slam quarters played without advancing to the semis. Yeah. Uh, he's unfor- kind of similar to um, to Sinner and what we were talking about, or, or I'm sorry, Tsitsipas and what we were talking about earlier. Like His game is just one-dimensional, which is to hit the ball with – every Mm. ounce of his body as hard as he can every (laughs) single shot uh and zero adaptability Mm. paired with what looks to be a pretty fragile mental state yeah and if you just if you just look at how he like against no he got to the quarters of the australian he played novak he got absolutely destroyed and uh, i think if you're a solid tier two guy you you kind of you push you push novak a bit you you maybe take us you maybe take it to five so Sitsipas, he's I think he's above Rublev. I think he's bottom of tier two because he he took he pushed Novak at the French Open final. And then he played he played a pretty solid match in the Australian Open final this year. He had a set point in the second set. He's uh, he's won a couple of masters. So I think I think Sitsipas and Sinner are in are in tier two. Now another example that I think demonstrates and, and Runa and Runa as well, sorry. Yeah. Another example that I think demonstrates why this tiered system is so good. Casper Ruud, so two Grand Slam finals, but he is yet to win an ATP 500. ATP <laughs> 500. That puts him in tier three, right? Uh, yes. Tier three. And also, what's his record against top 10 opponents? It's dismal. Yeah. We, we so again, that, going, to dismal. That, yeah. going to that probability. Mm. Oh, the scenario. only top 10 player he's beat in a slam has been Holger. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, as Dan was mentioning, he That's is right. I think, yeah, he's probably going to finish this thought. But the last two times he's got to the French Open final and the U.S. Open final, he's had some like unbelievably lucky draws. So those draws have just opened up completely. So as as Dan mentioned just like a few minutes ago, that probability wise, he need like like a ton of things to go his way. He he wasn't going to force the issue. Yeah, Dan, that point, that tagline of the tier three is completely accurate couldn't have said it better does that mean i get a uh, guest appearance on the next one <laughs> yes fundamental, you're, you're, fundamental you're, appearance <laughs> on each one yeah. <laughs> all right all right uh, and then taking the tier system into account i'm this is why i'm so excited for the the semis because i think the four guys in the semis are the four guys who are top of the tier system so yep. you got the tier two, tier one guys and the guy who's the highest in tier two um so we got the best four guys in the semis which we haven't done for uh i think a few years now yeah this has been a sick tournament yeah really good yeah all right mates approaching or just beyond 45 minutes any concluding thoughts before we uh sign off no we we aim for 30 minutes and we did 45 so that's pretty good normally we're like one and a half hours over running and like Brett, <laughs> we're we, like we... Re- recording Brett buying like a tennis warehouse uh, <laughs> buying stuff on tennis warehouse <laughs> we covered a lot and as expected uh you both were in absolutely top form today any uh yeah. any tech talk before we leave any any uh Purchases coming up. Any any reflections on gear or strings during a recent hit? Uh, so 
we uh, we'll have some of that. I've just bought a new Technifiber TF um forty three fifteen sixteen by nineteen. I'm gonna string it with some natural gut in the main. Uh, see how that plays. Got got it with me as well. Nice. Um, I recently bought the Yonix V Core ninety five. Uh, I'm impressed. I think it's a great. I've said this before. I still think this racket, although it's a Yonix, although it's a different uh, shape, I think it's probably closer to what Djokovic plays than the hundred score inch head speed that they disingenuously say that he endorses. <laughs> so so disingenuous. Uh, my so. racket update. I'm still playing with the 2020 Babolat VS uh, Aero VS. Love the frame. Recently reconfigured my lead tape a little bit. Uh, put Ooh. a little more in the hoop and a little bit under the handle. Uh, also strung it with a full bed of Hyper-G Soft, which I've never tried. I've only Ooh. used it as part of a hybrid. Big. Ball pocketing is great. Uh, I'm loving I'm loving the swing weight on this right now. Um, yeah, so I'm in a good spot. Dan, you have that taped up to, what, 335 maybe? Uh, it's, a little, it's a little under that. It's like 331, closer to. And Asher, head speed, you taped that up to, what, 340? Uh, I, I did tape it up to 340, but I untaped it then. <laughs> <laughs> I untaped it back I to like that three, two years three, ago. Three, I, three, I, 325. <laughs> I taped up my strikes like 347. I took it down like 330. Um, it was too much. You yeah. know, Brett, Brett has a goal of getting 400 <laughs> on the V cores. He's close to, uh, I think he surpassed Varinka. Varinka is a, is there uh, like a, is there enough surface area on the V core to get to 400? <laughs> no, it's just layered, layers, layers. No, he's past Dimitrov. Dimitrov is, I think, 370 on a pro staff 95 with an odd string pattern. Brett is like 385 on a V core 97. Uh, yeah. And um, just a quick uh, thank you to our sponsors. Uh, firstly, Oppo, Chinese. If you're interested in Chinese consumer electronics, make sure you go to Oppo. And uh, 538.com for some probabilistic data-driven analysis. This is true. This is true. <laughs> Promo we code, should task uh, uh, Nate. <laughs> we, should, uh, we should ask Nate Silver to do a um, tiered system uh, analysis. Get him on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mates. Cheeky Volley, episode 31. Dan Cohen and Asher Jelani in absolutely top form men's semi-final preview Wimbledon later mate thanks mate have a good one thanks guys take care